noticed last night it was just right around a quarter. So uh, this coming Thursday night is the new moon. We'll have Bible study Thursday evening at 7. We've been doing it 7.30 through the summer, but now that we're getting into fall and winter, uh, sundown's earlier, so I think sundown right now is around a quarter of seven, seemed like last night. I didn't check it exactly, but it was close to that. So seven o'clock Thursday evening for Bible study here. Begins the eighth month. Well, we tried to focus more on millennial conditions, both before and during the millennium and great white throne judgment day during the Feast of Tabernacles to keep it on a more positive note. However, we had come out of Ezekiel, which was uh, pretty distressing in its message. And now that the feast is done, we're headed back to Ezekiel. After all, the fires are still burning in California. Uh, Things are getting quite grim over there. Uh, I checked this morning, from the best report I got, the high winds have come back. They call those winds from the north in that part of the state the Diablo winds, devil winds. Diablo, Spanish for devil. devil. Am I going to talk like that all day? Devil. So... They've got their death count up to around 36 now, I think, and they've got at least 300 people that they've been unable to locate. And I imagine there are quite a few of those that have just been burned in their homes, like close to 6,000 structures now burned. If those were worth uh, 300,000 each, and in California a 1920s tract house is worth that, that's close to $2 billion there, not counting trees and power lines and all kinds of infrastructure that has been burned and crops and cropland and you name it, it's going to be many billions of dollars worth by the time it's done. Plus, the cost of firefighting. They said in that type of environment, it's about $1,600 an acre to put it out, and that's covered close to a quarter million acres now, all those fires combined. So, uh, When you put together the expense of Houston and Nate through Alabama, Mississippi, and Puerto Rico totally destroyed, basically, and uh, then these fires in the Mississippi being low and what that's going to do to crops and so on, the cost is mounting, mounting. Thankfully, (laughs) I say thankfully, that's a wrong word. Uh, At least the government can create another trillion dollars by typing them in. Uh, but someday, some way, that bill is going to come due. Uh, and I think that's going to be soon, too. The uh, Russians and Chinese just went ahead and launched their yuan for oil and for gold uh, brokerage. They've been talking about it and, and getting it ready to go for some time, but now that they've actually started trading as of, I think, this one day this week. So, what that will do to the petrodollar uh, will be seen fairly soon. Uh, that's what America's been fighting all these years with all these different wars, is uh, Qaddafi decided that he would 
sell oil for something other than American dollars. And it wasn't long before they dug him out of a little hole. Uh, Saddam Hussein did the same thing. And it wasn't long before Iraq was devastated. It's all about politics and money is what it's all about. It has nothing to do with us spreading democracy. Uh, we're not spreading democracy. <laughs> uh, so we're still mired in Afghanistan. They don't really have oil, but they got poppies and other things that people like to inhale and smoke and so on that uh, can be sold for lots and lots of money too. So it's all about our military political complex in America who is trying to rule the world and the rest of the world does not like that. They want a new world order and many, many of the leaders in this nation also want that new world order and want the United States destroyed. And that's why you're seeing things like uh, 911, which was obviously done uh, not by airliners. You just don't have buildings collapse in their own track from an airliner hitting them. Or Building 7 collapsing in its own track without an airliner hitting it. And on and on it goes. Uh, it's becoming very apparent and very clear that the Las Vegas thing was a very well-organized uh, endeavor. One lone nut did not do that. And in fact, people are beginning to disappear who have any other story. Uh, the guard that got shot in the leg was set to go on five different interviews, and before the first one, he suddenly disappeared. He's gone. Nobody knows where he is. There was a lady that uh, videotaped and was giving a report where shots were coming from, and she mysteriously died of natural causes in her home last night. So... <laughs> There's a huge cover-up going, but there are so many people are catching on now to the fact that our government is betraying us, and they have every intent of destroying this nation. I've been telling you that for years, because Jeremiah says that our leaders would give their hand, shake hands with the Assyrian, and sell us out. And that's exactly what's happening. It's not a conspiracy theory, it's scripture. Uh, it's happening. And uh, Obama sold us out, Clinton sold us out, Bushes sold us out. And I wouldn't be surprised to find out that Trump is also selling us out. He is a billionaire too. He went in there with ideas of cleaning the swamp, but uh, he's up to his rear end in alligators and he's not getting much cleaning done. So we'll see what happens. <clears throat> but we know what's going to happen, don't we? Let's read about it <laughs> right here in Ezekiel uh, with, that, with that preface. We left off chapter 13 the last time we addressed Ezekiel, which uh, is an expose against the ministry uh, or prophets, those who speak and try to uh, guide and lead the people. And that chapter is about a soft message that they would give, that everything's going to be okay. Put pillows on your elbows so that you don't put them on anything hard and hurt them. And, and uh, foam mattresses on your beds. I'm throwing that in there as well. Let's be as comfortable as we can. Everything will be okay. And God says, no, that's not the way it's going to be. 
verse 22 of 13, Because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way by promising him life. So what the ministry of Worldwide Church of God does, and those splinters from it, for the most part, have made people sad, and God hadn't made them sad, and have not really preached that we should repent and turn from our wicked ways by promising everything's going to be all right. And almost without exception, that's what they're preaching. Everything's going to be all right. Not for the others, but for you if you follow me. If you're doing what I tell you to do, then we have our ticket made. God will take care of us. So they're ignoring the They're ignoring Ezekiel. They're ignoring Revelation. They're ignoring all the prophecies and telling people everything's going to be all right if you follow me. Now, everything's not been all right here, has it? And I haven't even been telling you everything's going to be all right if you follow me. I've been telling you, you better follow God all through. You had better get your head in this book and you better pay attention to what God says and turn to Him with all your heart. That's the message you've been hearing. And that's what you'll continue to hear if you stick around. We're going to see some of it today. So getting into 14 then, after he had given this thing saying that God would deliver the people from uh, these liars, then came certain of the elders of Israel to me and sat before me. They came, sat down, and the word of the eternal came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? You know, God hears not sinners. He's told us that. Now, we all sin and come short of the glory of God, and we understand that. But those who are living a way, a life of sin or who have deceived themselves in thinking that the sin they're living in is righteous, like the Pharisees. Uh, He says, these people have idols in their heart. They've set up their own gods. In some cases with the church, it's been the organization itself is their idol, just as worldwide became somewhat of an idol to us, because we look to the man instead of to God. We look to the organization instead of to the Creator. And that's why God said, I'm jealous because you're not worshiping me, you're worshiping the work. And we can't do that. Herbert Armstrong even admitted one time that he went years without getting on his knees and praying because he was so busy doing the work that he didn't have the time to go to God. So the work became the driving passion rather than God being the driving passion, even for the leader. It does say our father is sinned. We read that just the other day. Uh, So he had his problems and he got his focus wrong at times. And we all do. But let's understand what God is saying here. If we get our focus wrong and we have had or we wouldn't be in the condition we're in, then we need to change that focus and get it right. Not just speak out of the vanity of our own hearts, saying, well, I'm, I'm a good leader, and I'm a good person, and therefore if you follow me, everything will be okay. Where do they get that? 
That's an idol of their heart. Because that isn't what God says. That's not the message from God. That's a message from a man's heart. That's what God's telling them here. These people have set up idols in their own heart. And they continue in their iniquity. Idolatry is iniquity, is it not? Among other things. First commandment. That's the one God gets the most upset about is the first one. You put other things ahead of me. Whether it's even the work of God that we put ahead of him. So he says, why should I be inquired? These guys came to you after you gave them this message about things will be soft and easy if you just do what we say. And then they come to you for a word and you expect me to use you as a conduit to talk to these people? Why don't they come ask me themselves? Why doesn't the population that's left of what was the church go to God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul and cry out and say, what's the answer to this problem that we have had and have? What's the answer? No, instead, they'll go inquire of somebody and say, give us the answer. And you'll say, calm down, Sonny. Everything will be okay if you just stay right here in this organization and follow me. We'll get the work done. And the ministry has no clue what the work is now. No clue. They think it's doing what Herbert Armstrong did all over again. And it ain't happening. Sorry. Haggai, Zechariah, all these prophecies tell us what the work is. The end time work. Tells us who's going to do it. And everything about it. It's all right here. But they're not paying attention to this book. This is God's word. Not the word of some man who dreams up in his heart that he needs to be uh, whatever he thinks he is. Why should I be inquired of by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them. He says, alright, they they're inquiring. I'll tell you what to say to them. Thus says the eternal God. So he said, don't tell them, Ezekiel, that this is my word to you. Tell them, here's God's word. Every man of the house of Israel that sets up the idol, his idols in his heart and puts the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and comes to the prophet, I, the eternal, will answer him that comes according to the multitude of his idols. He says, I'm going to take a personal hand in this, and I will answer every one of them according to the number and the degree of idols that they have. Ezekiel doesn't have to do it. God is going to take care of it. Okay? People say, well, why don't you go out and find the lost sheep and bring them in? You can't. You can't. This is not a circumstance that allows for that. Because they're chasing around after different ministers, after dis different ideas, and there's no way to get them. And you have no way of knowing who's a lost sheep, who's a bramble, who's a briar, who's on stony ground. There's no way of knowing all that. And there's thousands and thousands of them. God says He's going to do it. Remember? Where does God say He's going to do that? Anybody? 
Ezekiel 34 would be a good start. But in Haggai, he tells us, I will stir the remnant to come. Those sheep are lost out there, and I will cause them to come to do my work. No man can do it. There's no way. We'll get to Ezekiel 33 and 34 uh, here in time. And God does take personal responsibility. No doubt about it. And that's what he's telling us right here, too. Uh, I will answer him according to the multitude of his idols, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols. They're putting other things ahead of God. Now, it can be church, it can be self, it can be the culture and the things around us, it can be entertainment, it can be use of our time in a selfish way instead of giving to others that might have need. Uh, not that we're not to take care of ourselves. You don't take care of yourself. You can't take care of, anybody, care of anyone else either. But uh, when we become a little packet unto ourselves, it makes a pretty small package. God wants us to be a bigger package than that. He wants us to reach out and help one another and be close. I think we achieved that to a great degree just in this feast with the little group that we had. Seemed like every time I looked up, somebody was chipping in somewhere, just taking care of things that needed done. You know, dishes washed, floor vacuumed, tables set up, build a fire. It just, it just got done. That's the way I like it. I don't like to have to say, well, now, will you do this? Will you do that? Will you? Now, sure, you ask somebody once in a while, something needs done, will you help? And, and that's fine. But I like people to have initiative. If they see something that obviously needs done, uh, the doors have been open, we're running in and out, and the flies need swatted. You know, we, we, we don't micromanage here. It's okay to pick up a fly swatter and kill flies. You know, whatever needs done. That's kind of a small example, but uh, when we pitch in and help, instead of following the idols of our own mind and just doing our thing, because that's what Satan's world is telling us to do, is our thing. Do your own thing. Be a world unto yourself. That's Satan's message. And it's not one that God likes. So, therefore say to the house of Israel, here's a message from God. Repent, verse 6. Turn yourselves from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. I don't know whether... I guess these men came before God, before Ezekiel and thought they were going to get a nice message of everything's going to be okay. That's not what they got. For every one of the house of Israel or of the stranger that sojourns in Israel which separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Eternal, will answer him by myself. He may come to you and try to be placated and told everything's okay, 
But he says, I'm going to answer. Now that's where we are. As a church, God has answered, hasn't he? He's pretty well destroyed it. That's what he thought of the way we were. Now, he is about to answer himself on this land, and he's beginning to show what he thinks of America. He's showing it in hurricanes, in fires, in drought, in floods, and it's going to be in earthquakes and various other things. Now, I'm not just telling you that out of my head. Let's read on. And I will set my face against that man and will make him a sign and a proverb and I will cut him off from the midst of my people. So he is, it's, it's our national sins, it's our church sins, but each one of those sins that becomes a so-called national sin is perpetrated by individuals, right? It is a combination of individual sin that creates national sin. Everybody's doing it instead of one person doing it. So God says, though, I'm going to bring this down to individual I'm not going to tell you, well, everybody's doing it, so it's okay. I mean, you poor thing, you just got caught up in it. He's not going to show that kind of mercy. I'll set my face against them, and you shall know that I am the eternal, into verse 8. He is going to make it clear what the message is and who he is. And then he goes on to explain what he's going to do that will cause them to know that he is the eternal. There's several things he's going to do. Isaiah 44 and 45 show he's going to bless his people with his hidden treasures. And they will perform a work with the temple in Jerusalem that will show the world who God is. Now he's going to use another method here. He has a, he has a big bag with lots of tricks in it. God isn't limited to one or two ways of doing things. So here's something else he's going to do to show who he is. If the prophet be deceived, verse 9, when he has spoken a thing, didn't really know what he was saying. He was deceived. And we have a ministry out there and all these different groups from worldwide who really think that they're doing the right thing. They really do. They think publishing articles and doing television programs and all these things sort of about God or sort of about the Bible is a good thing. And they think that they're doing the right thing and God will bless them for it. And yet God says, right now, don't do that. He literally says, do not do that. Do you understand that? Right there in Revelation 11, he tells even the two witnesses, not just everybody, but even them. Do not go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the world. He says, my church has enough problems in it. Go in and measure the altar and those that worship there. Later on, they go to the world. But when God scattered and separated the church, he said, that's my bride, my son's bride. Take care of it first. You know? Why go to the world? 
I've already called these people out. Help them understand me. That's why you see Zechariah 4, where the golden candlesticks are pouring out oil to all seven of the churches. Because they're the only ones that God has given the message. They're the only ones that will have it. The only ones that can do it. If the prophet be deceived when he's spoken a thing, I, the Eternal, have deceived that prophet. God says, I'm letting them labor on in self-deceit. I have not removed the blinders from their eyes. And I will stretch out my hand upon him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. So this could be people in the church or it could be these evangelists and churches out in the world on a national level. It's speaking to both. But the first message is to the church. I mean, that's always the case in the prophecies. And they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity... The punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeks the prophet. So prophet and he who listens are both going to bear punishment for iniquity. You better be careful you don't get or hear a false message and do the wrong thing. I mean, this, this is life and death, brethren, right here. This is life and death. If you listen to the wrong message and be deceived by it, you're going to be punished. Scary. This is scary. Verse 11, that the house of Israel may go no more astray from me, neither be polluted any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, says the eternal God. Now, he is not there because he's a mean, vindictive God who just wants to hurt people, as some Protestants will tell you. God's going to get you for that. They think that's his attitude. No, it's not. He is going to do this so that people will ultimately turn to him with their hearts and serve him. This is not a Christian nation. It is not a God-fearing nation anymore at all. And even those who think they're Christians don't have a clue who God is or what He wants us to do. So we're non-Christian. If you will, the Pharisees were non-Christian. They thought they served God. They thought they followed Abraham and Moses. And Christ said, no. You're self-deceived. You worship yourselves. And that's what Americans are told to do in their schools, in their churches, In their entertainment world, television, iPads, you name it, the whole message is take selfies. It's all about you. It's all about you. Whatever you wish. Whatever feels good. Whatever you want to do, do it. Be your own man. Be your own self. Do your own thing. Do it your way. Not very many in this nation say, let's do it God's way. There just aren't very many of them. And even the ones that might say that generally don't know what God's way is. 
accept Jesus and get rid of the commandments. To them, that's God's way. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. So, he doesn't want them to go astray anymore. doesn't want them polluted anymore. He wants them to turn to him. Then verse 12, the word of the eternal came again to me saying, this is how it's going to be now, God says. Son of man, when the land sins against me by trespassing grievously, and this land of ours, America today, has done that. What's the land full of? Violence, thievery, fraud, adultery, fornication. Uh, marriage is almost out the window now. Everything shack up and live in. It's, you know, it's just the way it is. The whole, very little that's in this book at all do they even try to follow anymore. And he'll mention some of the things later on that we are doing. When the land does this, then will I stretch out my hand upon it and will break the staff of the bread thereof and will send famine upon it and will cut off man and beast from it. So one of the first things is drought, lack of food, and famine. That'll get people's attention pretty fast. But they won't turn to God. They will turn to killing their neighbor to get what they have, or killing their neighbor to eat him, or killing the baby that comes from a woman's womb and eat it. Scriptures say that's going to happen. Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. But when people get hungry, they'll do anything. Then he says, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, can you talk, talk about anybody any more righteous than those three? God picked those three out on purpose. Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it. They should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, says the eternal God. They couldn't save anybody but themselves. Nobody else. In other words, if those three men were here now, Noah, Daniel, and Job were here in our nation now, and they cried out to God and asked Him to spare, He would not do it. He'll emphasize that. If I cause noisome beasts to pass through the land and they spoil it, so that it be desolate, that no man may pass through because of the beasts. Now, what kind of beasts is that talking about? I mean, you've got a limited number of bears around, very limited number of wolves around. There aren't a lot of predators in this country. So I think this is probably imagery. I mean, the wolves and the bears would have to multiply very, very, very rapidly in order to make it so there were so many of them that you couldn't travel through the land. Okay? This is probably talking about things like tanks, noisome beasts, beasts that make a lot of noise. Now, how would Ezekiel know what kind of inventions would come after his day? It's just like in the book of Revelation, John saw all these helicopters and airplanes and all this stuff flying around. He'd never seen anything like that. So it looked like scorpions with fire in their tails, <laughs> you know. And I think that perhaps 
Ezekiel is saying the same thing, that if the land is overrun with war machines, such as tanks, they'll spoil it, uh, they'll make it desolate, and no man can pass through because of those things. Anyway, if, if that, whether it be physical beasts or whether it be man-made beasts, is in that sense neither here nor there. could even be robots uh, making noises, and they can't be destroyed, and they would make it impossible to travel. Drones. Though these three men were in it, as I live, says the eternal God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, not just a general statement here of nobody but themselves, but not even sons and daughters. They only shall be delivered, but the land shall be desolate. So, if we were as righteous as those three, which we're not, I hope we can be, we couldn't save our own sons and daughters even, just ourselves. We get later on into that in Ezekiel, where he says, Not the father for the son, or the son for the father. Each man will answer. For if I bring a sword upon that land, and say, Sword, go through the land, so that I cut off man and beast from it, though these three men were in it, as I live, says the eternal God, they shall neither sons deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they only shall be delivered themselves. So it is an individual judgment that God is going to make. There is no such thing in that sense as national sin. If individuals by the thousands and millions do it, we call it national sin. But it's still individuals doing the sin. And every man will answer to God for himself. Verse 19, Or if I send a pestilence into that land, bubonic plague is picking up in two or three different places right now. Uh, they've got hepatitis down in San Diego, and they're trying everything they can to clean that up. Pestilence is diseases. And pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off from it man and beast. Though Nan Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, I swear by myself, and he can do that. Says the eternal God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter, they shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. For thus says the eternal God, How much more when I send my four sore judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword, the famine, the noisome beast, and the pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. I'm going to mess around with your sins anymore, he says. This is going to happen. Now there's a little encouragement here. Verse 22. Actually, a lot when you examine it. He says, yet, <laughs> I'm going to do this. I'm going to send these four terrible things. Yet, behold, therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters. Maybe some of our sons and daughters. Who knows? Behold, they shall come forth to you. Now, he's speaking to Ezekiel here, who represented God and God's people, as opposed to these people who were living lives of sin, okay? So, do we not know from Haggai and other places that God 
is going to set up a leadership and he's going to stir people from around the world, north, south, east, and west, to come and do his work. And it'll be an amazing thing, won't it? If we're there to observe this, and I hope we are, we understand it, if we do what we should, we will be. Won't it be amazing to look at what we've been looking at in the church these since 86 on? And it got worse and worse. And then we get civil war, and we have threats that the Assyrian is about to bomb us, and they're sending their armies. And just ahead of, and in the beginning of that, all these people come from around the world. And they're brought forth to you. That's what he says. A remnant will be saved and come forth to you. And won't that be remarkable? What a miracle from God that somehow he stirred all these people to come to one place to those that he has appointed to do his work. I think we'll just shake our heads in bewilderment if we get to observe that. Where did you come from? Well, I'm from Zambia. Where'd you come from? Chicago. Where'd you come from? Melbourne, how'd you get here? Well, we heard God was here. That's what it says in Zechariah. We heard God is with you. So here we are. Maybe I'll go back and read that in Zechariah here in a minute. He says, They shall come forth to you, and you shall see their way and their doings. And you shall be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, even concerning all that I have brought upon it. Now, he's going to bring these four sore, terrible judgments. He says, when these come out, he says, they're going to come saying, where are Sabbath services? Where do we keep the feast? Uh, I don't eat pork and shellfish. What you got clean around here? We'll be amazed that they come understanding, knowing God's ways, and they're following them out of all the evil that we've seen. Here are going to come these people from all over the place. And you'll be comforted concerning all the evil that God is going to do. Because he's going to be killing millions, ultimately billions of people. And out of that are going to come some who will be seeking to righteously serve God. And you'll be comforted that they will be knowing that God is God. And when they see trouble, and then they see God's blessing around Zion and Jerusalem, and they go there, that'll be quite a comfort. You know, what God is doing has caused these people to come. And they shall comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, says the eternal God. It's hard to understand the kind of destruction that has come on the church. It's hard to understand the kind of destruction that is beginning to come on this nation. Hard to grasp. And why it's totally necessary. I was looking at some pictures on the internet this morning about these entire neighborhoods that are just burned completely to the ground. 
And some of those people had almost no warning. It just hit. And there are some bones and ashes in some of those homes that they've not found yet. They've got cadaver dogs going through looking now. One couple, he was 100, she was 98, had just had their 75th wedding anniversary and just burned up. When you see the pictures, it becomes more real. Uh, And you see the grief and the devastation that is there. And really, in a way, it's kind of hard to understand. Why do all these people just have to die? I mean, I go to town, and I visit with people here and there in the food line or wherever you happen to be, and joke with them a little bit, and they just seem like nice people. And good people, if you will. Uh, And there are a lot of, I guess, decent, upstanding citizens. Now they got their idols and they don't know God and they don't know God's ways and they're not living God's ways. But God has to get their attention somehow and let them know who God is. And he says, this is the only way I can do it. But when you see the righteous come to serve him, he says, then you'll know... I have not done it without cause, everything that I've done. Then you'll grasp it. You'll understand it. And when you see those who survive into the millennium coming up to Jerusalem to worship the Father and the Son, you'll understand even more why I have done it. Not just the church, but the nation as well. Then we'll grasp it. This is all you could do, God. It's all you could do to get their attention. So it's going to turn out right. But in the meantime, when you look at floods and you look at earthquakes and you look at fires, it's scary business. But that's the things he just told us he's going to do. Now let's go to 15. This is an interesting chapter. It's a short one. Says, and the word of the eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, what is the vine tree more than any tree, or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Just looking at that, you say, I don't know. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? What, what's a vine tree compared to a branch of a tree in the forest? I don't get it. God just asked him a question. And I'm sure Ezekiel stand there saying, I don't know, what are you talking about? Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work? Now, if you've, I've seen vines growing in the woods, haven't you? And uh, you want to build a house. You're going to go out and chop yourself a bunch of vines and build a house? Can't make a very good stud out of a piece of vine. It doesn't doesn't do much. Or will men take a pin of it to hang any vessel thereon? They didn't have maybe big steel pins, but you could take a piece of wood, even, you know, pretty good sized one like so, and you can drill a hole in the wall and stick that in it, and then you can hang a pot on it or whatever. But a vine, it ain't going to do much good. Behold, 
it is cast into the fire for fuel. About the only thing you can do with something that small is burn it and cook with it. The fire devours both the ends of it and the midst of it is burned. Is it good for any work? No, just heat up some food. It's about all it's good for. Behold, when it was whole, it was not any good for any work. How much less shall it be meat for any work? When the fire has devoured it, it's burned. It's just smoke and ashes. So you can take a vine, and it wasn't much good to start with. And then after you burn it, you really haven't got much. Little ashes for fertilize, maybe, and that's about it. Therefore, now God's giving us a message there. We, ha- we haven't got it yet, but he's, he's giving us a message there. So he says, therefore, in verse 6, Thus says the eternal God, As the vine tree among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so will I give the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now he's saying the inhabitants of Jerusalem aren't much count to get any work done. They're like a vine tree. Worthless. So he says, the only thing it's good for is to make fuel. So he says, I'm going to do the same thing with the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I'm going to burn them up. And I will set my face against them. They shall go out from one fire, and another fire shall devour them. How many we got burning in Northern California right now? Is, is there some symbolism here? Some of those fires are joining each other now and devouring them. And you shall know that I am the Eternal when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have committed a trespass as the Eternal God. Now, I think I'm beginning to understand this a little better than I have. Uh, remember, we went through chapter 17 of Ezekiel just the other day, showing the parable and the riddle there of how God had intended a tree. And then it became an overspreading vine, and its roots went to Herbert Armstrong, and it wasn't able to do the work that God had planted the tree to do. Instead of a tree with power and strong limbs, it became a vine. So that which had been planted as a tree became a vine. Get it? Vine tree. Doesn't grow up very high, isn't strong, can't get much done. Now, when it started out, it was growing and flourishing and doing pretty well. Been set in good soil, good water, good doctrine. Now, that tells you right there a contrast between what Herbert Armstrong believed and what Tkachas came to believe. It had been set in good doctrine. Essentially, what God had given Herbert Armstrong was good, sound doctrine. And when it departed from that, it got worse and worse. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need to keep learning. We do, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. But don't grow in error. Because that's what he's saying happened to the church. He planted Israel. 
to be an upstanding nation and an example to the Gentiles, right? What have we become? Just like the Gentiles. We'll see that in chapter 16, next chapter. Become just like them. They don't know the difference. We don't know we're Israel. They don't know we're Israel. We don't act like Israel. We act like them. Now, what good is this nation, Ephraim, for God's purpose? Worthless. What do you do when it's worthless? Burn it up. It's weeds. It's vine. Brambles. When I was a teenager in Big Sandy, we, they put us, instead of learning math and English at all times, sometimes they'd send us out in the woods to clean up the woods to make camping sites for the feast. You know what we did? We pulled the vines out of the trees, cut them, stacked them up and burned them, and left trees only. They didn't have any use for the vines. They, were, they didn't make shade to camp under. They got your feet all tangled up. And they harbored insects and snakes and all kinds of things, so we just cleaned it out. That's what God's going to do to this nation, is clean it out. So I, I never had tied, really, chapter 15 with 17, but they fit perfectly. He calls it a vine tree, just like he said it became a spreading vine, which wasn't able to do much. And even there, the when... Herbert Armstrong died and others took over, it still had where it had been planted. It still had the living waters, the good doctrine, but it departed from that and got even worse. And then God says, how will they escape? They've broken my covenant. They're going to die. Let's, uh, let's consider a couple of scriptures in the light of this to make it clear to us. Go back to Jeremiah 2. I said I might go to, to uh, Zechariah, the end of that other chapter, and then I forgot it. But here in 2, uh, verse 20... For of old time I have broken your yoke and burst your bands. God has taken care of his people in the past. And you said, like in Egypt, I will not transgress. That's, that's Israel's response always when God delivers them. We're going to gripe about not having any water. Okay, God gives us water. We won't gripe anymore. Oh, we don't have meat. We don't have food. Okay, I'll give you manna. I'll give you quail. Okay, we won't gripe anymore. And then they did. So anytime God blesses His people, they say they won't transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree you wander playing the harlot, you look to somewhere else for satiation or pleasure or sustenance or whatever instead of to me. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, holy, totally a right seed, a good seed, How then are you turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine to me? He doesn't use the tree analogy here, 
but he uses the vine. Now, he, he does that back and forth. Sometimes he'll use one analogy, sometimes another. Christ referred to himself as the vine and us the branches. And he says, if you don't stay connected to me, you'll wither and die. So he uses the vine there entirely in that particular analogy. But here, God uses the same thing. He doesn't use the tree, but he's saying, whatever I plant, whether it be a tree of Ezekiel 15 and 17, or whether it be a vine, what grows isn't what I planted. I put the right seed in. Now what? Seed of Abraham, but suddenly you look like a Canaanite. Beginning of chapter 16 says that. For though you wash you with nitre and take you much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the eternal God. You can rinse yourself off and say, don't I appear clean and lovely? And God will say, "Now nah, you got to look on the inside. Isn't that what Christ told the Pharisees? You wash the outside of the cup, but hey, that didn't do any good. There is so much of the New Testament and from what Christ said there that is quotes from the Old Testament. This is another one of them. He used this one on the Pharisees. Yeah, just get you some soap and you'll think you're okay. We've got to be sure we turn out to be what God intended when He planted us. Hosea 10, verse 1. Israel is an empty vine. He brings forth fruit unto himself. He doesn't bring fruit to God, but to himself. Now, isn't that what we're taught in our nation? Is take care of yourself. Produce for yourself. Do for yourself. He says, no, that's not what a vine is for. It's to bring forth fruit for others, not just yourself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. So the more prosperous we were, the more fruit that was produced, the more we turned to ungodly ways. Blessing usually causes people to turn from God instead of to God. Isn't that ironic and strange? When we're doing well, it's easy to forget God. When we're hanging by our heels in a well, it's easy to turn to God. Every time God tries to bless Israel, they misuse it, abuse it, and turn from Him. So pretty soon He says, Why should I bless you? You can't handle blessing. Sometimes we wonder, well, why doesn't God bless us in this? And why doesn't God bless us there or there? Or why don't you do this for me, God? Because you can't handle it. That's why He won't. He knows you'll forget Him the minute He does. Working with people is a tough job. Even for God. The only thing that causes people, if anything, to turn to Him is curses. Now, what he's going to do? Curse the whole world. And then they'll come saying, where's the beast? <laughs> you know? He has to do this. And when people begin to repent, like he said at the end of the last chapter, 
then you'll understand why I had to do this. It's the only thing they listen to. Hasn't this nation been blessed? We've been blessed above every nation on the face of the earth. This place has been the American dream for the rest of the world. It's getting where that's not so true anymore, but that's what it has been. And have we turned to God? Not at all. Did blessing us help? Nope. Now it's going to get taken away. Uh, Isaiah 27. In that day, the Eternal with his sore and great and strong sword, this sounds like Ezekiel, doesn't it? Shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea among the people. In that day, sing you to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Eternal, do keep it. I will water it every moment. Lest any hurt it, I will keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the earth with fruit. Has he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? God says he's going to turn this around. Notice verse 11. When the boughs thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Branches that get torn off, you use for fuel. Therefore he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show them no favor. So he shows that he's going to destroy, and then he's going to plant his vineyard in goodly ground again, and they'll sing about the red wine and the blessings of wine. And he says that of the church there in Isaiah 54, doesn't he? Or 55? Come. Have wine and milk without money. That's 55. Yeah, he's going to take care of it ultimately. But meantime, he's got to burn all this wretched vineyard that's not producing anything good. And when he's done, then he will plant Israel and everything will be good. Isaiah 5. This goes back the other direction now. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. And again, Christ calls himself the vine. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Christ planted beautiful vineyard. He's the base. He's the foundation of it. 
And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it for protection against anything that might come. Uh, foxes like to eat fresh grapes that are just getting ripe, and people like to steal them, and so on and so forth. So he was a defense, a tower, a protection for it. And also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Didn't he say before in that one, I planted it with really good seed, and now what's it producing? Wild grapes. He gave this nation to us. Beautiful, fruitful place. And we're producing wild fruit. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. All right, let's look at it here. I'm the guy that planted it. Now let's look at it and see what happened to it. Let's make a comparison here. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done to it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. God planted the church with fruitful doctrine, with living waters, the Spirit of God. Planted it in a city where it could go forth with broadcasts and everything and have the transportation, everything it needed to do well. And then it began to produce wild grapes instead of good grapes. What could I have given it more? And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the heads thereof, and it shall be eaten up. Break down the wall, and it shall be trodden down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns to cotchism. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. The money stopped. <laughs> For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, and then they had to sell off the vineyard, the buildings and everything. God stopped the rain. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. He says, I'll let you know, this is about spiritual Israel and physical Israel, both. That's what the story is about. But behold oppression for righteousness, but behold a cry. Woe to them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. God hates cities. He even hates subdivisions. He doesn't want houses to be built house to house. Look at the fires that are destroying these neighborhoods. There they are, house to house. One catches on fire, the next one catches on fire. And they all get destroyed. God wants us to have elbow room. Now, we couldn't give everybody 976 acres out here. Uh, physically impossible. But we at least tried to get a full acre, so that you had a little elbow room. And that's what I was thinking, was this verse when I laid this thing out. And did the best we could not to get it too close together. In my ears, says the Eternal of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great big ones, without inhabitant. Ten acres of vineyard shall yield just a little bit, and the seed of a homer shall yield just a little bit. Woe to them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. Well, when it's all said and done, there may not be much wine there. 
You know, that vineyard which produced thousands of bottles may just produce a few because of the fires. The harp, the viol, the tabre, the pipe, the wine are in their feasts, but the regard, they regard not the work of the eternal, neither consider the operation of his hands. We even got that way at the Feast of Tabernacles. We'd go to party and drink and be entertained and go to country uh, concerts in Branson or uh, fish in St. Petersburg or whatever we did to entertain ourselves. People started leaving services before the final song and the prayer even. Got to get to the beach. We've been over this ground. But the, the, the focus was not on God and worshiping the king. We got away from that. They're just there to entertain themselves. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. They just don't grasp what they're doing. Everybody thought it was okay to do what we were doing. God didn't. Their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. The ministry doesn't have anything to say that's worthwhile, and the people are dying of thirst, famine in the land. Therefore, hell has enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory and their multitude and their pomp, their pride, and he that rejoices shall descend into hell. And the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled. <coughs> and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But who's going to get exalted? God. He's going to have to do this in order for us to recognize just who God is. It says the same thing we're reading about in Ezekiel. That's probably enough of that. It goes on to show uh, the same thing we're talking about in Ezekiel. Uh, let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. That's way back in the Old Testament. <coughs> Deuteronomy 32. I'm about to run out of time here, but... Here they're about to go into the land... And life and death is set before them. Isn't that what God is saying in Ezekiel? I'm setting life and death before you. <laughs> Obey me and live. Disobey me and you're all going to die. Same thing he says back here. Uh, and he says in verse 6, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the eternal your God, he it is that does go forth with you, he will not fail you nor forsake you. Now, he's talking to Joshua here, who's about to lead the people into the promised land. He says the same thing to us in Haggai, in these other prophecies, just before the gathering comes and we go back into the original promised land. He uses these exact same words to tell us not to worry. He'll take care of us. And then he says to Joshua, in the sight of all Israel, be strong and of a good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Eternal has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And then he tells them to obey all the things that God says. Now let's go on down. I'm in the wrong chapter. 
I'm supposed to be in 32. I was in 31. That's okay. It all fits. Because at the end of chapter 31, it says, I will tell you what will befall you in the latter days. So then we get into chapter 32, which is where I wanted to be. But this is about the latter days. This is about now. Okay? Give ear, heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. I will drop the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew. And he says, The name of the Lord, He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are good, and so on. Verse 6, Do you thus requite the eternal, O foolish people, and unwise? Is He not your Father that has bought you, redeemed, bought with the blood of Christ, redemption? Has He not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. He says, Think back. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your Father and He will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. Doesn't He tell us that we need to go back to our fathers and pay attention there in Malachi? Saying the same thing back here. He says, that's got to be done. He says, remember when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. When He separated the sons of Adam, He set the bounds of people according to the numbers of Israel. And then he took care of you, in verse 10, in a desert land and a waste howling wilderness. And as an eagle stirs up her nest and flutters over her young, he spread abroad her wings, takes them, and bears them on her wings. So he says, I'm like an eagle's mother to you. Then he goes on to say, you haven't done what you're supposed to do. Uh... Go on down, verse 31. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Now, is this the latter days that he spoke of in the last verse of 29? Are our sins as Sodom and Gomorrah? Gay pride, gay marches, Homosexuality is the buzzword today. It isn't politically correct to say anything against that. Perversion is the thing. It's the big deal. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall and bitter. Their, vi- their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. So we are a nation of drunks, whether it be drugs or whether it be alcohol or whatever our particular potion is, we're drunk on being high, on feeling good, on doing what we want instead of what God wants. Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? To me belong vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. I could be reading Ezekiel just as easy. I could be reading Matthew 24 just as easy. Earthquakes and famines and people killing each other and love waxing cold. Doesn't matter where you go. It's the same story all the way through. 
So the vine tree isn't any more than any other tree. We've turned into a poison vine. We didn't produce the right kind of fruit. It was poison fruit, wrong fruit. It wasn't no fruit. It was the wrong kind of fruit, and that's even worse. Better a tree produce nothing than produce poison. And that's what this nation has produced, is poison. God is about to destroy it. Verse 8 of chapter 15 of Ezekiel, I will make the land desolate because they have committed a trespass, says he. Well, well, we didn't read all of this. We stopped in verse 6. Let's finish it up in verse 7 and 8. Because of the way we are, he says, I'm going to burn up Jerusalem just like you'd burn up a worthless vine. And I will set my face against them. They shall go out from one fire, and another fire shall devour them, and ye shall know that I am the eternal when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have committed a trespass, says the eternal God. And he's already told us in the previous chapter that you're on your own. Nobody can save you but you. Or nobody can save you but God if you turn to God in true essence. That's where our nation's headed, brethren. And it's coming fast upon us. I don't have to do this as a long-term prophecy anymore. All I have to do is, as I did at the beginning, hurricanes, fires, and it's going to get worse with even more natural disasters. Earthquakes and various things are going to happen. And they're going to start coming in increasing numbers because God is beginning to do the things that he said he's going to do. So turn to God. (laughs) Look to him. Because Noah, Job, Daniel could save no one but themselves. Can't save your kids. Can't save anybody. Turn to God yourself. And maybe then God will send some of our sons and daughters and will amaze us when that happens. And we'll say, wow, how did God do this? But he did. And we'll be comforted by it. So if we obey, God will bless us. That's the bottom line. And we can be comforted in that. Therefore, comfort you one another with these words. As Paul said there in 1 Thessalonians 4, I believe, about the resurrection.